we're going to look uh, in the scripture together, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen for you this morning, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, and the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, this morning we're looking at the book of Colossians. It is written to, it's a letter written by Paul. He was in prison. Uh, he did not found, he did not begin or plant this church. Uh, rather, a, a man who was saved under Paul's ministry actually went and started a church in his hometown. And there was some things going on in the culture at the time that caused this pastor of a small church, a new young church, uh, to be concerned. And he was looking at the culture of his day, and he was concerned because where he was writing uh, was under the shadow of the Roman Empire. But not only that, the culture, much like what we find ourselves into today, uh, was kind of taking from a buffet of religious ideas. And so the idea was we could take the uh, circumcision and dietary laws of the Jewish faith, and we could take mysticism and some of the pagan cults and mix them together and kind of find your own truth and, and put that together, and it was just kind of whatever you wanted. And, and kind of the idea, the way that it worked in Rome was you could say as many gods are God as you want, just as long as you don't say they are the one true God. And so terms like king of kings, lord of lords, prince of peace, things that we know and we see on Christmas cards were actually attributed to one man. And that man was Nero. He was the emperor of Rome. He was the most powerful man on the planet. And so Paul is in prison writing a letter to his good friend's church, and he's concerned about the culture that they find themselves in. But he also knows that the Roman Empire, this massive kingdom, is kind of in the background overshadowing everything. You see, when Rome would come in, they would take over your land, they would destroy everything, and then they would begin to build up your economy. They would add road systems, they would actually improve waterways, and then they would add up how much it costs to destroy you in battle and literally give you a bill for the man hours and resources used to destroy you and then put you on a payment plan to pay them back for beating you, okay? And so they would do that, and so Paul is writing to this little church that is being kind of bullied and overshadowed by their culture. And here's what he's going to describe to them. He's going to talk about this idea of kingdom, this idea of image, and this idea of power. Thanksgiving is coming up. And if you know anything about Thanksgiving, there's so many different traditions that are going on. And one of those traditions is the kids' table, all right? I don't know if you do this in your family. We've got three young boys. At our family, we have a kids' table. And if you keep up with shows about prison, the third most dangerous place in all the world is the kids' table at any meal, all right? There might be some other places, but at a kids' table, it, the reason it's so dangerous is kids do not pretend, all right? Kids go at you with everything they have, and they're saying things like mine and no, and they're using those little plastic forks to stab each other, and it's like all on war. Now, the reality is there's a battle going on at the adult table, but
but we've learned to kind of mask ourselves. We've learned to kind of manipulate. We've learned how to kind of still get our way. But what's at play at the kids' table and at the adults' table and in every relationship and at your work and wherever you find yourself is every single one of us has this idea of kingdom. There's something in us. John Ortberg describes it this way. Your kingdom is that little sphere in which what you say goes. Your kingdom is the range of your effective will. And the kingdom of self, this is my kingdom. I'll guard it. I won't share it. If you violate my kingdom, I will attack you. You see, you and I all have our own little kingdom. That area at home, that area at work, that area in your marriage where what you say goes, where you have influence. And the question that Paul's going to present to this church is, which kingdom is your little kingdom a part of? Because there's two kingdoms at play in this story. There's the empire, there's Rome, which kind of represents the kingdoms of the world, and then there's the kingdom of God, and they are opposed to each other. They're clashing. There is a war going on, and Paul says, what are you going to do with that little bit of influence that you have at home, at work, and in relationships? Which kingdom is your kingdom loyal to? And so what we want to look at is a little bit of the background. As I said, this is a small church in modern-day Turkey. Paul is writing to them, and they had a lot at stake. You see, um, one author says that we have basically three types of convictions. We have public convictions. Public convictions are things that we say out loud because we want people to believe that we believe them. So uh, politicians will say things that they believe we want to hear. Um, A statement in my home that I might say is a public conviction is, I would love to watch Hallmark Christmas movies instead of football. All right, that's an example. Now, in my heart of hearts, I'd love to see the game, but I want to enjoy watching the small town boy go and meet the big city girl, and they fall in love, and he secretly is a millionaire. He might even be Santa Claus, and he's a lumberjack, and they're going to fall in love on Christmas Eve and then get married. I I love that. I want to see that. That's a public conviction. That's me saying that to my wife, but maybe on the inside I feel different. Then there are private convictions. Private convictions are the things that I say I believe, and I truly believe that I believe, but when I enter into a difficult time of challenge, it actually reveals I believe something different. And so maybe it says, you know what, I believe in generosity, but when things get tough for me, I find that that might not be true. Or I would say, I believe in forgiveness, but then when someone actually deeply wounds me, it's not the case. But then there are what's called core convictions, and psychologists call this kind of your mental map. It's, It's your actions. It reveals what you truly believe, and so your actions actually show what your beliefs are. And what Paul wanted for this church and for you and I is that our actions would truly represent what we say we actually believe. And when we do that, Paul says, it's going to clash with the outside culture. It's going to be so counterculture to what we see that it's going to cause some issues. You see, for its original audience, some of the things that they might have done for a living were in direct connection to the Roman Empire. Maybe if you were at that time, you would have made some of your money providing wheat and oil and wine for the cults in that day, the imperial cults of the Roman Empire. They would worship other gods. And, and you would produce these things, and you would sell them in the market. But the majority of your income came from this empire, and they would use it to worship other gods. 
it may be that you were really good with cloth and some of the wool that you would use was actually used to make garments for the high priests of those cults. And if you were wealthy, wealthy enough, a social status would be you were invited to be a part of the planning of the parades that honor the Roman Empire. So when you begin to say Jesus is Lord and you're a part of this little church in Colossae, you have to begin to ask some difficult questions. If Jesus is Lord, is that just a public thing that I say? Is it a private thing that I hope I believe? Or is it a core conviction in my life which causes me that I might be willing to lose some money on this? I might be willing to lose some of the social status that I enjoy so much because that's a kingdom that I no longer belong to. And Paul is going to get very personal with them as we pick up in verse 15. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, his original audience would have picked up on that word image and known exactly what he was getting at. You see, in that time and in that culture, image was everything, much like it is today. And the, the logos and slogans of the empire were everywhere. It would be on forks and utensils. It would be on banners. It would be in sculptures. Even your clothing, they have found, would have images of the empire or sayings of the empire saying that they brought peace, peace for the entire world. And so when you begin to think about these images, Paul says, if you want to know what God is really like, he's not like the empire. He's not like the emperor. In fact, God is like Jesus because Jesus is God. And if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. But here's why that is such a big deal is because for you and I, we many times like to create God in an image that we can manipulate and we can handle. We want to have a God who is in the image of what we want, a God who would never forbid certain things we enjoy, a God who wouldn't ask too much of me, a God who would never call for me to give or to serve sacrificially. We do this in all relationships. We cast an image on what we want someone to be like. And we do that because at the core of all of us, we want to be in control. This past weekend, I did a wedding, and at a wedding, it's beautiful, and you get caught up in the emotion. And, and, and what's interesting is every wedding I've ever done, there's never been a time where the bride is coming down the aisle and someone refuses to stand up. Nobody ever goes, well, I don't care how nice she looks. I'm not getting up, right? People get involved. They, they're excited to be a part of the wedding. And then we're watching them last night, and the bride and groom are dancing. And it's the perfect image that they can represent, right? And, and she, she's, she is spray tanned to per perfection, and he has been doing, uh, you know, hit cardio so he could fit that suit. And, and that was the image. And, and they love one another, but what, what scriptures teach us and what, you know, psychologists will tell us is really you kind of love that image of that person, but marriage is a journey in which you actually begin to learn the real person. And so I was living out 11 years of marriage, which meant I had a diaper bag, I had a huge plate of food that I was saying was my kids, but was really mine. And I was responsible for the three boys. And so like any loving dad, I put my phone in front of them and said, just watch the images on the screen so I can eat, right? That was the real image. That wasn't this projected thing. And, and, and sometimes with marriage or relationships, we say, this is what I want you to be like. And Paul would say, we do that to God. 
We say, my God would never ask me to do that. My God would never call me to go out into my city and do things that might be uncomfortable, that might cost me something. And Paul says, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look how he gave. Look how he lived. Look who he forgave. Look who he spent time with. Look what he was willing to sacrifice. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He goes on to verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Paul is saying some pretty incredible things. If you look in the original language, he is literally saying that not only were these things created, but the sustaining power of the universe, what keeps Everything happening, what keeps you breathing and the sun rising and and everything it takes to live what we call life, Paul says is being sustained by Jesus. And then he says everyone who has a throne only has it because it's on loan from King Jesus. Now for you and I, we might say, okay, that sounds good. But for the original audience, they'd say, no, 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 wait, wait, Nero's on the throne. And here's what you got to know about Nero. Nero is a very interesting guy. Nero had a mom and dad who were known for their violence and known for their selfishness. Uh, In fact, his biological dad, dad died when he was a young age. And his mom remarried her uncle, who was the emperor at the time when Nero was very young. And she convinced her new husband to adopt young Nero because she had her sights set on him ruling one day. The only problem was he already had a son. I was three years younger than Nero. And so this young mom and young child developed a plan to get to power. You see, power is the ability to act. It's the ability to do something. And there's something in all of us that wants power to do something. And history tells us that this mom and son began to plot and began to plan on how they could get Nero to the throne. And by the age of 17, Nero became the emperor of Rome. But in order for him to do that, a lot of people had to suffer. You see, mom was willing to poison her husband and have him die. But then they realized they had to get rid of the biological son. And so on his 14th birthday, they gathered everybody around for this birthday of this soon-to-be emperor. And 17-year-old Nero came to the party. And history tells us that while at the child's table, Nero was involved in a plot that poisoned the 14-year-old boy's food and killed him at his own birthday Nero, at 17, was very hungry for power and status. History tells us that Nero went on to become an emperor, and for the first five years, he behaved. But after that, he began a killing spree. He killed his own mother, believing that somehow her help was really her own cry for power. Nero was so obsessed with power that countless, two, two of his wives were killed at his hands. Several of his own family members were forced to take their own life in his presence And eventually, what he's most famous for is burning down two-thirds of the Roman city because he made a comment it looked shabby. He wanted to do a renovation project. And so history tells us that a few days after that in July, fires were set in strategic places, and for nine days, Rome burned to the ground. Nero needed to blame it on somebody. He rebuilt the homes for free and said, the true enemy is those Christians. It's the church. This is who's in power when Paul is writing this letter. 
History tells us that Nero went on to persecute Christians. Some of them he set on fire outside of his dinner tables so he could eat dinner in candlelight and hear them suffer. And Paul is writing to this group, and he says, it seems like Nero's in charge. It seems like the empire has all the power, but he begins to talk about Jesus as the true king, as the one who sets thrones in place. And in verse 17, he talks about that. But then in verse 18, he says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The church, think about this, is the means by which Christ carries out his purposes and performs his work. See, Paul is writing this church and he says, listen, I know that you're up against these incredible odds. This violent, cruel man is ruling the world. Here's what you need to know. There is a power that goes before you that sustains all things. But there's a power that is in you that does something else. Paul later would refer to that in Philippians as the power of the resurrection or in other places, resurrection power. And it's a power that many times we haven't tapped into as the church. You know, we live in a time where we don't really believe we have much power. If you have paid attention, we recently uh, had an election and I'm from Florida and we have trouble counting. And so this voting thing is really tough for us. But during this voting process, there was a lot of text messages and phone calls uh, and, and, and social media posts and TV commercials about politicians. And my boys, I love them, but they love to see these commercials. And, and sometimes when you're a kid, you think they're all true. And so when a commercial comes on and says, don't vote for Jim Jones, he drowns puppies on the weekends, my kids go, that's real. We've got to stop this guy, right? I mean, it, it, it has caused so much that we believe that we don't have any power, and that's why the commercials are there, because they're concerned people won't vote, and people don't vote. Why? Because they think their vote doesn't count. There's something about that that points to the church that says many times we don't do the things we're called to do because we don't believe we have the power to do it. And when Paul writes to this church that is up against this massive, strong empire, he begins to describe Christ and the cross. And in verse 19, he says, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul would say, you've seen Nero's power, but you need to know about Christ's power. It's resurrection power. And what he's telling us is, is in the Psalms, it describes God as all power belongs to God. That doesn't mean that God is the most powerful. It means that anyone or anything that has power has it only because God delegated it and allowed him to hold it. And what that looks like is Paul is saying, if you want to measure God's power, if I took this Bible and said it weighs five, you'd be saying five what? Five pounds, five ounces, what? Paul says, if you want to measure God's power, Christ's power, it's resurrection power, which means it defeated the most powerful thing we would know, which is what? Death. We're afraid of hurricanes and storms because the worst thing they can do is kill. And at the cross, Jesus defeated death. Timothy Keller describes it this way. He says, the resurrection power of Jesus 
The same stuff that raised Jesus from the dead when death itself with all of its fury and all of its power and all of its strength tried to bind Jesus up, he broke the bands of death like a thread and that's what's living in you now. You see, North Park, Paul would say there's a power that goes before you that sustains the entire universe because of Jesus. But there's also a power inside of you that flows through you to do the work of the church. My uh, wife's side of the family, I have a brother-in-law who, for a hobby, collects cars. You might collect cards or things like that. He collects cars, and so he likes to talk about cars. I don't know much about cars. And so recently we were together for a birthday party, and, and he starts talking about his Lambo, all right? Like, you know, his Lambo. He kind of looks like, he's trying to look like Vin Diesel from the Fast and Furious Things. I hope he doesn't watch this message. Thanksgiving's going to be awkward. But he's kind of got this Vin Diesel vibe to him, and he wears the real tight shirts. And he's talking to me, and he's like, yeah, my Lambo. And I'm like, a Lambo? What is a Lambo? And he starts talking. I figured out it was a Lamborghini, okay? He's, and he's talking about the power in this Lamborghini. And he's talking about all these intricate pieces and how he went to Houston, Texas to, to pick certain things out and how they even came down to do some changes for him and how powerful it was. And he's like, my Lambo. And I'm like, I drive a Vanbo. You know, that doesn't sound as cool. But here's what he said. At the end of all that description of power, I said, do you drive it to work? And he laughed. He said, no, 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 no. This type of power is made for the track. I go to a track and I race and I use that power for what it was meant for. And it got me thinking about this passage. And I began to realize that, yeah, God's power is sustaining everything. I can breathe right now because of that power. But church, there's a power that is inside of us that is meant to go out beyond these walls and transform people's lives. And many times that resurrection, that death-defeating, that incredible power that is inside of me, I use it to watch Netflix, right? I use this incredible, just death-defying power to just live and exist. And Paul says, no, that power that's inside of you is meant to go out and do something so incredible. And that's why history will tell you that Nero eventually died and that Christianity became the official Religion of the Roman Empire not long after without a single military, without a temple, without an idol or statue, Rome said Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Why? Because of resurrection power. You see, Pastor Anthony believes that North Park is called to pastor the city. It's one of your core values. He shares about how when he moved here, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, I don't want you to just raise up a group of people to pastor. I want you to pastor a group of people that's going to pastor the city, that's going to go beyond the walls of this church. And if you're going to do that, you need more than, than cool slogans or, or, or great graphics. You need resurrection power. Where we're at, my wife and I in Vero Beach, Florida, we partner with a ministry called The Source. Where we're at, there's a lot of homeless families that, that live in the woods. Their kids go to school. Most people would never know. They work jobs. So they, just, they just can't quite get to where they can live sustainably in a home. And so they, they live in tent communities in the woods. And the source exists to provide a place for them to shower, and they can get three meals a day. And so we partner with them. And one day I said, well, what else can we do? And I said, well, you could do a, a Bible study. 
And I'm going to tell you, it's the most humbling teaching experience of your life. Because sometimes there's 30 people, sometimes there's six people. A lot of times, half of them will just take a nap. And I don't get upset. They're tired, they're wore out, but they'll sleep. And this one time, you know, you would just go and you might prepare and you might speak for weeks and not see anything change. In fact, a while back, this guy raised his hand. And as a pastor, you're like, oh, yeah, I see that hand. This guy's life's about to be changed. And he goes, hey, what time are they serving ice cream? And all the, the power that I thought I had was just gone at that moment. But every once in a while as we remain faithful, God does some incredible things. And uh, a few months back, there was a young lady who needed a Bible. And there's Bibles donated, but for some reason as churches, we donate King James Bible with size 3 font. And so they get these Bibles. And, they, and so we got her a Bible that she could read. And, and I brought it, and she wasn't there. And for a few months, she wasn't there. And then just... After Halloween on that Thursday, I came in, and, I, and she was there, and I, I grabbed that Bible. I said, hey, this is for you. And she goes, will you autograph it? And I was like, I didn't write it. Um, she goes, no, no, I mean, like, will you, will you write the date? She said, this is a big day for me. And I said, why? And she said, well, yesterday, I, I would try to take my life. And my, uh, my fiancé walked into the tent, and he stopped me. I said, well, why would you do that? She said, well, I've, I've got children, and I, I lost one of my children, and she said, I saw these kids trick-or-treating, and I just knew I'd never see my little girl live to, to, to be that age. It's over. She said, I just didn't want to be here anymore. I didn't think I had any, anything left to offer. And at that moment, a like on Instagram wasn't going to do anything for her. You know, a, a comment on her Facebook wasn't going to get her through. What I needed to do at that moment is be able to step out of the way and allow resurrection power to speak into her life. Because without God, I had no chance. And so I just had the opportunity. I just began to just kind of speak and to just pour into her and just let the Holy Spirit move and just, just begin to say things that maybe to you and I wouldn't seem like that big of a deal to say you have incredible value. To be able to look at her and say, you matter so much to God and your life has such great purpose. And she just began to sob. And the reason being is we, if you grew up in church world, you're used to that. We have fed you for so long about how God has these plans for you that we've kind of gotten used to it. I remember in youth group, I was like, of course he's got a plan for me. I'm a big deal. Jesus needs me on his team. No, no. This girl just began to shake and began to sob. And I just began to speak into her life. You can't do that without resurrection power. And you have a pastor who believes this church is called to go beyond these walls and to make a difference. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to get messy, if you're going to get into people's lives who have addictions, who are broken and families are destroyed, whether poor or rich, there are people in nice cars and beautiful homes with terrible addictions and broken marriages that need resurrection power. They don't need another church. They don't need just another great service or a great event. They need resurrection power, and that's in you. That's flowing through your body at this moment. But you've got to use it. Because it's, that's what it's there for. Your pastor has a heart and a vision for you to pastor the city. And my wife always tells me, you got to give them something practical. You can't just get people excited and say, all right, go out and figure it out. So, so here it is. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to people. Carrie Newhoff says this, if you listen longer than people listen, you'll hear things most people never hear. If you'll listen longer than most people listen, 
you'll hear things most people never hear because we don't listen. Think about it. When you walk by someone and say, hey, how you doing? You keep walking. You literally ask a question that requires a response as you move on. We don't listen. And this morning, uh, I was staying at a hotel, and I, I took an Uber, because partly because in Bureau we don't have Uber, and I feel like it's fancy, and so I thought it would be cool to Uber. And I get in the car, and I get out my notes, and I'm reviewing, and the lady just begins to talk to me. And I'm, I'm thinking, ma'am, I don't have time to talk to you. I'm talking about how important it is to have time to talk to people, to reach people. I don't, I don't have time for this conversation. And here's what she said. She said, oh, you, you're going to be at a church? And you, I said, yes, ma'am. She said, are you going to speak there? I said, yeah. She said, is it Elevation Church? I said, no, ma'am, they're a cult. Their pastor actually got arrested. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I was trying to help North Park out, you know. And, and uh, she just begins to tell me about herself. We got a, like a 10-minute drive, and she's talking about life and why she does what she does. And I just had to close my notes. I had to set them to the side, and I just had to listen. I realize that that's where we miss it, guys. We're, we're filled with resurrection power. We're called to do these great things, but many times the first step's too small for us or it takes too long or it's too messy or there's too much to risk. But I want to encourage you, when you leave today, when you go to the restaurant, would you just would you listen? Would you pay attention a little bit more to the waitress, to your own kids? I'm guilty of that too. Would you listen to their story? Would you hear what they're saying? At work, when you've got this checklist and all these things you got to do, pastoring the city means slowing down to listen to the person next to you. Pastoring the city means in a world where everybody's angry and everybody's tweeting or posting, and you just stop and you listen. You say, you know what? Your ideas are way different than mine. And I'd love to tell you all the reasons you're wrong, but I want to listen a little bit more to your story. I want to see how you got to this place. I want you to know that this is a safe place right now at this moment to share this story, and I'm willing to step into the pain of your life to listen. Sometimes it's just too simple for us. But your pastor, my friend, believes that the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, when you come here, you are going to raise up people who are going to pastor the city you have the vision, you have the pastor, and you have the power. What are you going to do with it today?